Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the In The Oven Show. Today's guest is a freelance entertainment journalist and something a bit different, so I thought we'd get him on to have a chat. He's based in Manchester, specialising in movies, TV and pop culture. Uh, he writes for lots and lots of newsstand and online publications like The Guardian, The Independent, Little White Lies, Total Film, The Big Issue, Kerrang, which is a blast from the past for me, uh, Yahoo Movies and so many more. Uh, over the years, he's interviewed a wide variety of uh, actors, directors, musicians, media personalities. I even recall him interviewing me years and years and years ago, which is, so it's come full circle. Um, so he's interviewed people like Demi Moore, Seth Rogen, Amy Poehler, uh, to even Brian Cranston, Danny DeVito and Angelica Houston. So he's also the editor of ManchesterWire.co.uk which is a popular What's On site showcasing the best things to do, which I imagine is quite difficult at the moment. So we'll get into that. Uh, things to kind of see, eat and, you know, do in the city of uh, Manchester. Uh, it can be usually found either at the cinema, which is where I saw him last, uh, or at the pub. So I'd like to welcome Simon Bland to the show. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? Hey, Dan. How's it going? Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. This is uh, a real cool setup you've got going on. No, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I've been meaning to reach out for you for ages because you've just got probably one of the coolest careers that I know of, just kind of interviewing awesome people and you've done it for so long. So I wanted to give a different angle to the show and really just dive into some of the nuances of what you do and what you've been through and how you work. Um, but I wanted to open with more of a relaxed vibe and we haven't spoken for a long time really. Mm. So I just wanted to delve in and kind of ask, like, what's the first memory you have of us kind of meeting and because we, we go back a long time. But, yeah, like, yeah, this is, this is what I was thinking about, like, since we've uh, been talking about doing this. And I think it goes back to scouts. I don't think we were in the same scout group oh. but i think maybe our scout troops when at one point sort of met up uh which was years ago that was like in between primary school and high school so that's a vague yeah. first memory but then i think the main memory that i have when i think of you is uh watching you play guitar in uh in the music room of our high school and uh it was probably one of the things that convinced me to then start to learn the guitar because every lunchtime we would see, we would literally go to the music block and you would be playing guitar and we'd have like a drummer there and you just play covers of like very sort of of, of the time new metal songs. I think there's a lot of like yeah. Papa Roach and things like that. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I have really strong memories of that. And obviously high school, I mean, that was a scarily long time ago now when you think about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably the earliest memory I have of you. And then, of course, when we were gigging in like college, which isn't the first memory uh, of you, but I definitely remember depending on you so much for like guitar amps. <laughs> and like, I'm like, Dan, I don't know what I'm doing with this guitar. You, you need to tune it for me. <laughs> I was like, why was I in a band? Like, if I, if I couldn't tune the guitar properly, what am I expecting people to take away from that show? So, yeah, as you say, memories that go back, yeah, a long time now. We're old now, Dan. We're old. Uh, so old. Uh, <laughs> body's starting to break down and shut down. Even I thought I'd get longer than this. It's just, uh, yeah, I think it's the toll of lifting too much heavy equipment over the years. Just gig, 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 gig. But, yeah, that's my memory as well, like, 
we kind of met in high school really properly and then we're in the kind of group of friends and uh, kind of just helped each other out as we kind of went along really. So yeah, yeah. You delved you delved into like journalism quite early on really from like almost like end of high school college kind of getting into that. So when did you realize you wanted to go down that path of, you know, journalism in general? So I remember when we went to college like um there was like a like a like a crossroad path where I was like, okay, do I do art or do I do film? And uh, and I just chose film because I just enjoyed watching movies and TV shows and didn't really think too much about how I would like make a career in that world. I was just just thinking, okay, this would be really good. And then after college, we went to university. And at the same time, I sort of was at another crossroads where I was like, well, what do I want to do at university? Uh, is it art or is it film? I did have an interest in art, but I was just notoriously not very, not, not good enough at it to really do anything <laughs> with it. And also art and film are two career choices where people do wonder, okay, how are you going to make a living in those two things? Anything creative and artistic, like it gets your parents or anyone a little older thinking, yeah, that'll, that'll be, that's a great idea for a career. I'm sure you'll manage to make a living doing that. Um, but yeah, then I, I noticed that Manchester Met was doing uh, like a film and media course. So similar to the decision of a college of choosing to do film and media at college, I was like, oh, I'll, do, I'll just continue that and do film and media at university. And then I was doing the course and, you know, first years of university are just a bit of like a bit of a joke really aren't they it's mainly just drinking yeah. and and getting through yeah. with the bare minimum so you can get to the second year but then when we got to the second year they were like okay in order to pass this course you need to do a week's worth of professional industry work experience and i was like oh crap what am i gonna do now because like you know deep down you know like you're uh you know your own sort of like work ethic and you know what you're going to be good at and what you're going to be bad at and i was like Yep. I'm not going to be able to be, I just I can't see myself being a director or directing a feature or like a mm -hmm. short film, even though yep. we did do that at university. Um, I couldn't really, you know, the idea of producing something didn't really interest me with all the numbers and the balancing uh, budgets and things like that. Uh, and, and due to sort of a lack of knowledge, I just thought, well, well, what's the most attainable way in? And I just thought, well, journalism, you know, I, that, that, I could do that from my bedroom. You know, I, could, I could do that from my computer. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then in order to sort of get through the second year of university, I applied for work experience at Empire Magazine on a bit of a whim and, uh, and just randomly got accepted for a week's placement at uh, Empire Magazine, which is still the biggest movie magazine um, around. And... Uh, and that was really eye-opening. I still didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know what the role of film journalism or a film journalist was. Um, so then I had to figure out how I was going to survive this week in London when I, you know, we're both from Blackpool. You're obviously around that area. You're obviously not there now. But like at the time, I was like, oh, where am I going to live in London for a week? You know, that's going to cost me so much money. So I ended up staying in like a hostel for a, for a week. Oh, uh, sharing a, a, a like a like a like a four bedroom room with like homeless people that had scraped together just enough money to stay there for a week. It was uh, for the first time in like the big city. It was like okay, this is kind of intense. And I was like basically doing grunt work. I was making cups of tea, transcribing other people's interviews, 
And, you know, when you're the work experience kid in a big organization like that, they don't, you know, everyone's busy. They don't really have time mm-hmm. to give you the really exciting jobs. So I just kind of did it and then came home and managed to get through university, through my second year of university. And then, and then I completed that degree. And then I was out into the world of retail and I worked in the Arndale Centre in Manchester uh, in a toy mm-hmm. shop. And it was terrible. I don't know if anyone's ever worked in the Arndale or worked in retail, but they'll feel my pain. Um, And that was really useful because it taught me what I didn't want to do. You know, I really experienced firsthand. I was like, well, this isn't working. I don't want to do this. Um, And then I thought back about university and thought, okay, well, what what can I actually do? Um, And again, journalism just felt like the most attainable way in. Um, So I started blogging. I started doing more unpaid work placements. Like by this point... I had friends that lived down in London, so I, I graduated from the hostels and I was uh, sleeping on people's couches for like two weeks, a month at a time. And then um, and then after that, I thought, okay, there's a limit to what I actually know about the craft and, and what you actually, how to be useful in this role. So then I decided to sort of double down and uh, do a top-up degree at UCLan in magazine journalism. And then it sort of spiraled from there, basically. That's a very long-winded answer to your question, but that's basically how, how I decided to do it, just basically because it was the most attainable way to access that world, which I think for a lot of people, you know, I, I, we, I think we have mutual friends that, that do now work in the, in the film and media industry, and it is, it's more and more becoming an attainable way in. But even as recently, I mean, from my point of view, recently from about 20, 15 years ago, it just felt like a completely different world to crack. And I was like, well, that's not something, you know, a guy from Blackpool does. (laughs) It's just not something that will happen. So, yeah, I think it's just winging it, really, and blagging it, and then I've sort of ended up where I've ended up today. You know, you decided to go back to uni, and then you'd kind of learnt your craft as much as you could in education. How did you then get to the next stage? Was it a lot of graft, doing favours, doing freebies, or like, were you a bit more proactive about it and had someone giving you insight? Like, how would someone get from the education stage thinking into more of the work headspace? At a certain point early on in my career, I was like, well, I just need to get down there to London because everything was happening in London. You know, if you're outside of London, you don't get any of the opportunities because all the junkets, you know, where all the stars go and do their interviews happens down in London. Um, all the previews of movies that you need to see before you get to interview the stars happen down in London. And uh, and you're just very, very cut up. You know, the north-south divide was, it's it sort of, it, it, like a very lot of real. people, it kind of angered me because it was like, you know, it does, it does make it this little, this little cult club that, you know, by the sort of geography lottery, a bunch of people can can really rapidly rise up the career ladder just purely because they're in the right place. So I, early on, I was like, okay, I just need to go do more work placements. So, you know, work placements are free to do. I'm sure magazines still do them. Um, and they, they have to, well, they did then, they had to sort of, by law, give work placement opportunities to new journalists. Um, mm-hmm. So because of that, they were like obliged to take on these people into the office. And the more of them that I did, I realized, okay, you can get more out of these by being more uh, proactive and useful in the office. So I just started saying yes to every opportunity that I got got, and like, you know, overstaying my welcome in people's couches and stuff. And, uh, And eventually though, it got to the point where 
I was applying for jobs and or for work placements, and they were like, you know, you're at a point now where you could probably apply for a job. You, you don't really need to be applying for this placement. Um, so then I sort of doubled down in terms of taking what I'd learned on those placements and trying to trying to apply them, but from a remote point of view. So based in Blackpool at the time, I would just like read all the magazines that I wanted to write for and really understand them inside and out and look at the regular, um, some of the regular features that they need to fill every month. You know, there's, there's pl- every magazine has, in addition to the ever-changing news stories and features that are timely and pegged to, uh, like, releases of films and TV shows that are out that given month, they, they need to have, like, certain pages of the magazine filled every month. Um, so I would just try and be useful and, and, and help an editor's job by saying, how about you let me do this for this page of the magazine, or how about you let me do this? You know, for every, like, ten emails I sent, you know, like, five would, or, or seven would be a no, but some of them would be a yes. And then I wouldn't tell anyone where I was based. I'd literally be doing it out of my bedroom in, in Poland, just outside Blackpool. And, uh, and I'd uh, try and get phone interviews and, and get exclusives. Occasionally I would, I would jump on the megabus or the train if I had enough money and go up to London and interview people in London. Or I would go to like film screenings, which would then allow me to review the film or access or get access to some of the stars. Um, but the most part, uh, for the most part, I just basically emailed editors remotely and and really sort of pushed my way into the top of their e- email inbox um, through like a tightrope walk of like sort of being annoying, but sort of being uh, politely persistent, shall we say? And uh, yeah, I just sort of built it up. And then once you started getting, once I started getting anyway, uh, things in print. You know, all of a sudden you've got yourself a basis of a portfolio. And once you can say you've been published in one or two magazines, it's then easier to go to other editors and be like, well, I've, you know, I've been published in this magazine, so why don't you let me do something similar in your magazine? So it's sort of a snowballing effect. But, yeah, it was hard at first because it is really daunting and, and there's so many people that want to do it. And being up north, you did feel quite, um, quite cut off, yeah. Do you think people overthink that initial stage and procrastinate more than they should do. And really, it's more of a numbers game rather than a quality game initially. You've just got to put yourself out there in every possible way you can. Yeah, definitely. I think there's plenty of ways for you to think, you know, you can think of any number of reasons to not do something and to not just think, oh, I'm I'm never going to get an interview with that person or I'm never going to get in that magazine. But... um, one of the things that surprised me is how um, it doesn't really matter where you are in the UK. It's all about the relationships you have with ed- editors. And a lot of the best relationships that I've had with editors, which literally I still have now from when I started my career about 10 years ago, I've never met these people ever, you know, like face to face. But like we talk on email as if we've known each other for years because we have. Um, mm-hmm. But you nurture that relationship over time and you wouldn't get to nurture that relationship, yeah, like you say, if you were just like, oh, okay, I'm not even going to try. And, um, and if, you, if, you let, if you let it get into your head that there's so many other people wanting to do this, why should I bother? Then you just wouldn't do it. So I think a certain level of being tenacious really really does help. And, and sort of like, what have you got to lose? You know, if, you don't, if they say no, then you're in the same position. If they say yeah then you've got to start to worry because then you've got to do what you said you're going to do. But, um, but just get to that point, yeah. 
So, before we kick into some specifics, like what are some of the highlights that you've had over the years of being a, a journalist? Like what are the things that if someone was considering to start doing it or, you know, wanting to, what would you say are some of those things that kept you going and kept you into it and you were like, oh, that was ace? I think to start with, um, like seeing something in print, like with your name on it, like even if it was, um, you know, I used to do a lot of stuff free um, just because I, it was a great way to kind of get better in a public space, but also just build up your portfolio. And um, I used to do like a monthly film roundup for all the film events going on in Manchester in, in, in the Skinny, which is a, 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 an Edinburgh sort of newspaper magazine. But they had a Manchester mm-hmm. edition. I used to do the movie roundup for those guys. And it was just, it's just, you get a little buzz, definitely like going to the shops or like going to like a little, you know, a garage on the motorway and, and run into the newspaper section or the magazine section, like flipping around and being like, oh, I wrote that. I wrote that in my bedroom, in my underpants, and now it's here. <laughs> it's like, that is really cool. And then from that, I kind of, um, that's definitely a highlight early on. But then like the more you kind of get, and I'm, I'm, ne- I'm ne- never getting numb to that. It still always blows my mind completely. There's been a couple of times where me and my fiance have been to, to New York on holiday and gone into like a, a magazine shop and, and found something that I wrote. And that just blows my mind completely, just yep. thinking that that it can go this far out. But they do go that far out. And you, 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 it's sort of like working in a vacuum. You don't really get a sense of, who reads your your articles or where they end up or, you know, if anyone even cares about what you're writing about. But then when you see them that far, it makes you think, oh, God, like, people must actually be reading these. This is quite crazy. So that's definitely a highlight. And then after that, like, just sort of getting access to, to, to talk to people that I never in a million years thought I'd ever get a chance to talk to, um... It's crazy. It, it constantly blows my mind. And uh, and you can't really normalise it, even though it does sort of become not normal and it doesn't become like work, but just the fact that you would ever end up on the radar of people like like Seth Rogen or, or, or like Demi Moore, that was a huge one because she's obviously like a huge star. But then a lot of times it's a lot of the really cult names that are like people I grew up watching on tv like i've done a lot of things with the guys who do the muppets and uh and like i i, I interviewed um carol spinney who uh was the original big bird for a long time and he also did uh, oscar the grouch and uh and that's insane like where at the end of the interview where he sort of talked to me as big bird I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is actually crazy. And then all of a sudden, the Oscar the Grouch like showed up as well, and like that's insane as well. And so yeah, there's there's loads of little highlights like that, and that's why I love doing the job so much because, you know, really deep down, it just completely plays into everything that I love, and uh, I can't really believe sometimes that I get to do it. So. Hopefully, it'll carry on, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, it won't end. <laughs> so, like, I started off with some of the, you know, amazing moments in your journalism, but there must be some troughs, like, not just emotionally, but, like, work-wise, where it's probably up and down initially. Like, what have been some of the struggles that, you know, because you see an article, like, written by journalists, and you don't know what goes on behind the scenes, how it 
got there, how the thing was set up? Like, what are some of those things that you really struggled with initially when you started? Again, this comes from like being working remote and not being, not having the benefit of learning like a craft in a in a magazine office environment where you've got people above you and you've got people below you and the people above you can sort of show you the ropes and um, the day-to-day like processes of the way this industry works because just like any industry there's a way of doing it but then there's like the unwritten rules that no one tells you about and you have to learn the hard way little things like when you can and can't approach publicists or when you can and can't approach um, approach different magazines. Um, you know, certain magazines might have certain um, rules. You know, obviously they're all in competition with each other, so you have to be aware of that. So those type of rules, was defi- that was definitely tricky learning the hard way remotely when I only had sort of, I had to learn by baptism by fire by basically making mistakes and learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on in my career, I um, yeah, I, d- I definitely made a couple of like like mistakes, but then you you sort of learn from them and uh, and and try and carry on regardless. But like when you've got your entire you know your passion and your career goals invested in this industry, you know it can really hit hard when like you hit those troughs. So, like, if you do make those mistakes, you really take them personally, or I did at least. And I think a big sort of learning curve is is just learning to carry on regardless. Because a big, huge part of it, and this is sort of an ongoing trough, which is sort of, it, it goes, it, it, it becomes more and more apparent the more you do it. And especially now, because there's so many journalists and writing is so accessible because of blogging and things like that. Um, like you get loads of rejection letters, like you get loads of rejection emails, and you don't always get explanations as to why your ideas have been um, have been uh, rejected. It's like competitive, but it's also relentless because, as the person responsible for generating your own income, you've got to constantly be looking for like new hooks and new opportunities, and also new uh, new ways into a story that other journalists won't have thought of because that's what's going to guarantee you the commission and and again like you were saying before down to it being a numbers game you know you're not the only person pitching an idea about um about the best way to cover the new ghostbusters film for example you know that at my pitch is one of 20 pitches or 30 pitches from people all over the world not just the uk um so you've got to either have that relationship with the editor or you've got to really have a standout pitch um so not taking the rejection letters too to heart uh, is, is definitely like a learning curve that you have to kind of get through. Um, and just try and, yeah, kind of like keep moving forward. Like, because the, the, the rejections are a huge kind of downer. <laughs> um, but then for every 10 rejections, you get like, you know, five or six amazing commissions. So th- those are the major troughs, really. Um, uh, it, balancing out all the positives but yeah you've just got to keep going keep moving forward and try and stay positive because sometimes you can be like what's the point you know there's so many other people doing it but gotta stay positive and like pep it's hard <laughs> especially during lockdown <laughs> but uh yeah yeah it's very english to be self-destructive as well i find like you know when you ask an english person how they are you always say oh not too bad <laughs> like it's never like i'm amazing like it's awesome like you know 
North yeah. American response is very like, wow, life's amazing. But England's <laughs> like, yeah, it could be worse. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's easy to do that. But like when when you get these moments of like triumph and you get to speak to someone that you, you were surprised you got to interview, like you mentioned a couple of people like Demi Moore and Seth Rogen and the, the Muppets kind of people. But like, is there anyone that really stands out that was just so much fun and you didn't want to like put the phone down? So yeah, I think there's been there's been so many interviews where uh, people that I've talked to that I just never thought I'd get the chance to talk to, and, uh, and in terms of highlights, there's been loads of things. Like um, a lot of the times, the big names are really uh, amazing because you never feel like you're gonna get the chance to talk to those people. Um, but then at the same time, a lot of the cult people that you uh, that, you, that I grew up watching. Um, it's just amazing getting the chance to speak to him. So, I mean, I uh, spoke to Jermaine from Flight of the Concords, which um, went on for ages. He kind of kind of got through the sort of question-answer part of the email and you just sort of felt like you're having a bit of a conversation with him, which was really, really interesting. Um, I talked to him again, like I mentioned it before, but a lot of the Muppet people, like uh, Big Bird and, and Oscar the Grouch, which was crazy because you grew up watching those people. Um but there's just so many. Uh, it does all kind of blur into one. Um, Demi Moore was huge because I never thought I'd get the chance to talk to someone like that. Danny DeVito, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, he had a great way of um, sort of disarming the conversation up front where he just sort of started talking to you as if you're like his best friend. Uh, so he was like, hey, Simon, how's it been? And I'm like... Uh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> like, you feel like you've known the person for ages, but uh, you haven't really, you know, you don't know them at all. Um, but that really helps kind of, like, ease you into the conversation and really make you feel like you're a better friend of the person than you actually are. Um, but yeah, like, again, like the Futurama people, that's always pretty crazy because you sort of forget that you're talking to people who have voiced programs and cartoons that you grew up watching some of the simpsons people that's that's pretty crazy i talked to matt Groening, in um <laughs> the creator of the simpsons obviously and at the end of the um interview he asked me like like out of the blue like well what, what would you like to see uh with like in, a, in another futurama like series and i was like oh i wasn't expecting you to ask me that <laughs> i have no idea but it's just like it's crazy getting to talk to these people on a one-to-one level because there's one thing when you meet someone in the street and you're like, oh, can I have a selfie? But then when you actually get to talk to them and dig into their creative process, it's, um, it is really addictive and you sometimes don't want to um, like hang up the phone. <laughs> so how do you go about finding those people to talk to? Like, what's your process for, you know, getting in touch with them? It's like detective work, really. It's like, um, it's, it's like you kind of, you, you, publicists are the, are the main way you you really go through the publicists and they will contact the person and tell you yes or no whether they would like to do the interview or not um but for the most part um it's yeah it's just like detective work you have to try and really find a way into these people sometimes it can be uh, contact them on twitter I've, I've done that sometimes it can be googling the name and the, their agents and contacting them through their agents um charlie brooker was a really interesting one because i did an interview i did a feature a while back about the 10th anniversary of dead set which is a channel for zombie big brother style horror comedy show and uh and and 
Charlie Brooker's publicist at first was like, he doesn't have time to do this. So I just thought, oh, that was a shame, and then carried on regardless. And I thought, well, I'll try and interview another person who was in the show, Andy Nyman, who's worked with Darren Brown and a load of other people. And um, and then I interviewed him, and it went great. And then a couple of days later, I got an email from him, and it was really out of the blue. And he said, this is really strange, but I've just had dinner with Charlie Brooker, and I mentioned that uh, I did this interview, and he was like, in his words, why the fuck hasn't he hasn't he asked me? Um, so, with this in mind, here's Charlie's email. Email him right now and get an interview, get an interview with him. So that was like crazy. I was like, oh my god. So then I emailed Charlie and we kind of arranged an interview. And I didn't mention to the publicist that or to Charlie that his publicist had said he was too busy. I just sort of cracked on and, and did it. Um, but yeah, like that was a, a case where. I ended up getting the interview through a really, you know, strange circumstance. But then, yeah, some people are just, you know, you'd be surprised how many people have websites and how how many of those websites have contact areas where you can get a direct contact to the person and just drop them a line. And it's just basically trying to blag it, really. And, uh, and yeah, and finding your way in. How do you balance, when you actually get to talking to people, how do you balance... It being a question and answer thing that can be a bit hit and miss and a bit, you know, forced, or you know, becoming like a conversation piece, but still getting out of it what you want. I do so much planning for each interview, but there is a certain part of it where you've got to like let it be a bit flexible and let it let it have a life of its own. So you have to stay on track, and sometimes that means you have to ask the cliche questions of you know, that go along with an article, the, the questions that they've been asked a million times before. But mm. at the same time, it's all about trying to find things that they haven't been asked before and new takes on familiar topics. Um, and that can be really hard because, like, a lot of the people I talk to have been asked a million times about the same film or TV show or album or whatever. Mm. So you have to really do your research and find a new way in and, uh, and, and, and trying to keep it light, trying not to stick too closely to your interview questions and sort of reading the room. I think sometimes you can tell in people's voices when they're, okay, they're done talking about this now and it's time to wrap up. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can tell when people are welcome, you know, welcoming more conversation and are just really happy to be talking about a certain topic. So a big part of it is reading the room, I think, and reading the temperature mm-hmm. of the conversation, which only comes throughout, you know, by doing loads of interviews, really. You've got to really put in the time and read the sort of writing on the wall. So you're talking to a lot of, you know, relatively high-profile celebrities. Who's surprised you with being the most like down to earth and approachable maybe give a few instances of people you've spoken to and what you've kind of talked about that you were surprised well brian cranston was really intense like he was really really he just had coronavirus (laughs) when i talked to him and uh he was dead like into the minutiae of like acting you know like the real which he should be because he's one of the greatest actors in the world so uh you know I shouldn't have been surprised that he was so deep in terms of analysing the way that Hal, the stupid dad in Malcolm in the Middle, reacts to getting covered in bees. You know, like, he really <laughs> thought about that. Um, and I was just like, hey, that was funny, wasn't it? You got covered in bees. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, he really got deep into it. Um, really? 
Yeah, and then, you know, you do get some people like that who who really go deep in terms of, like, the craft and they take it very ser- seriously. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's loads of people have surprised me. Like, when, I, again, when people get emotional, that's really difficult to deal with um, because it's always unexpected and, and actors a lot of the time have their emotions on the sleeve because that is their skill set. So it's no surprise mm-hmm. that they can access them so easily and so seamlessly and so quickly. And, uh, yeah, there's been plenty of times where I've talked to people and they've choked up and they've been unexpectedly emotional. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy when, when people do surprise you. Like, people like Seth Rogen, like, as soon as you kind of get on the phone and you hear his laugh, you know, he's got that sort of very Seth Rogen laugh. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's you're immediately grounded because you think, oh yeah, it's like that's exactly what I expected. Um, Simon Pegg, he was very, very approachable. A lot of these people are very approachable. It really helps talking to these people when you kind of you get past that uh, sort of starstruckness and you kind of see them for people. Uh, the other week I interviewed Charlie Sheen and he was very, uh, yeah, very sort of approachable guy very down to earth very very like light-hearted not like the drug addled guy that you see on youtube clips or gifts mm-hmm. and things like that yeah it's it, so it's every person is different really that's interesting i know you've had some time speaking with people that are fascinated with english culture so like how how's that been with people way knowing way too much about you uh, like and where you're from yeah it's it's crazy like um because we're so we're both from I say Blackpool because that's the, the the main place that people know. We're both not from Blackpool, but I imagine people wouldn't really know Garstang or Pollen. I know I was interviewing Mike Myers, and he was um, obviously like he has so many ties to the UK because he's you know he, Austin Powers is British, that bastard is Scottish. He's done so many British characters in his career. I think his dad was Liverpudley, and he's got a real strong connection to the north of the UK, and. Uh, and like as soon as I got on the phone with him, he just was like, "Oh, where are you from?" And and I was like, "I'll tell you where I'm from, but you won't know where I'm from. You you will have no idea." But I mentioned Blackpool, and he was like, "Oh yeah, Blackpool Tower. Yeah, the Prom. Yeah, the Sandcastle. Uh, Stanley Park. Uh, all these places." I was like, "There's no way you have been to Stanley Park." And he's like, "Yeah, I used to go there all the time. Uh, my, uh, summer holidays. We our family would come over. We got Preston." <laughs> I was like, you've got Preston. Mike Myers would be in Preston. For a treat, yeah. Yeah, for like a day out. I was like, that's a far stretch from Hollywood. I mean, you're Shrek. What are you, what are you doing in Preston? Um, so that that was really weird. And then Dan Aykroyd as well. A few, like about a year ago, uh, I did an article on the 40th anniversary of the Blues Brothers, which is one of my favorite movies. I, I grew up watching it. And Dan Aykroyd has this encyclopedic knowledge of not only England, because his, his family... Uh, go back all the way to Yorkshire, I think, or around that area. Uh, but, like, the most haunted areas of, of, of the UK because he's really into... You know, he's a Ghostbuster. He, well, why wouldn't he be yeah, yeah. into the most haunted well, areas of anywhere? It's his job, yeah. It's his job. It's his trade. Um, so he he was he was immediately reeled off, like, the top three most haunted places within my vicinity. Like, when I told him <laughs> where I was, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, go down the road there and you've got the... the you know, the, the, the Ackroyd family church is just a few, you know, yards down the road. And I was like, okay, if you say so, you know more about this than I do. I can see it from my window right now, but you clearly know everything. Um, so, yeah, it's like it makes you realize how small of a world it is. 
don't realise that I thought I was from an obscure place in the UK, but apparently not. <laughs> it depends who you talk to, because I live in Canada now, and it's, yeah, I have to say Manchester a lot, or Manchester United, or Liverpool, and they're like people's, if I say Blackpool, no one's heard of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, I wouldn't visit it if you were over there. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not like a hot destination to go to. So. No, I completely get that. So when you hear like big celebrities knowing almost pinpoint where you're from, it's like, I bet it creates that connection a lot quicker to get you through that almost, you know, nervous kind of, are they going to enjoy this kind of conversation thing? Yeah. Just get you through that and you're in, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, that's totally true because no matter who you're interviewing, you really don't know what you're getting yourself into until you are in front of them or until you're on the phone with them. And like, because even if like, even if they are like the most friendly, the people with the most friendliest reputation in the world, you could just catch them on a bad day. Like, um, mm. yeah, I won't name any names because there was everyone that I've interviewed has been really like uh, really great. But you just don't know until you go on the phone, and and when you do strike that balance up front, like it is, it's it's great because it takes you completely off guard. Because I go into every interview thinking, okay, I've got to get in and out. I don't want to take up too much of this person's time because really, every time I think about doing interviews, I'm like. And why have you given me the time of day? Like, there's no reason why I should be on the phone to you right now. There's no reason why, you know, I should be talking to, I don't even know, like, yeah, Charlie Sheen. I just shouldn't be on the phone to Charlie Sheen. That should never happen. Like, I shouldn't be on the phone to these people. So I'm like, okay, I need to get in and out. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think sometimes I do tr I do sort of fall on the whole try to kill, kill them with kindness type of thing. I really without being too gushy or like too, you know, mm. bootlicky, I do try and be grounded and be like, look, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me because I know you're really busy. You're way busier than me. Um, so I appreciate it. And I think by breaking down that barrier up front and just sort of telling them how much you appreciate them taking the time out of the day to talk to you, they do kind of give you the the, the time of day. And, and it is disarming when people have that connection to something that you thought was so personal to you. Um, it really helps the conversation go, but then it is difficult then steering it back on track. Like, okay, this is great talking about the Pleasure Beach, but we really need to talk about Tremors 3, <laughs> which is like some, some like niche, some really niche like 80s, 90s horror movie that is, went yeah. direct to DVD, which is how I make my living. <laughs> so, you, so you're interviewing people and you've got everything down. Like, what's the process for, you know, writing good copy and getting the interview across in a way that's, you know, short, sweet, but entertaining? You know, you're dealing with very precious things sometimes, like emotional testimonies or whatever, or people, you know, you're talking about real precious pop culture type stuff. So how do, how do you make sure that's dealt with? Yeah, it's interesting because I do two, so I do kind of like two sides of, of, of copywriting and, and journalism. So I do a lot of creative copywriting for businesses and that could be uh, people come to me with a brief, they want me to talk about their new shop opening, if especially it's for Manchester Wire. You know, it could be a new bakery opening in town. I need to get the key information across up front. So then there's this inverse pyramid where you lead with the most important story and then you 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 basically drip feed down the less the, the the lesser important bits of the story um so that's a whole technique of learning how to write for that market and uh and and with journalism a lot of it is is really showcasing the quotes that you have that you've gathered 
from these really interesting people and and getting them across up front in a really grabby way that's really going to grab a reader, especially right up at the top of the article because most people don't read the whole thing, so you really need to grab them in that first paragraph. And throughout both of those two sides of the equation, the ability to write in a really short, condensed and succinct manner is so key. Like, I get stressed out when I see sentences that go on longer than like two lines because I just know it's it's getting a bit too much like you can't I want to try and like really pare it back really say as much as I can in as few words as possible but on top of that you've got to also inject a lot of your own personality in there which is a different side of the equation which is really difficult because when you're doing um, businessy writing, you know, you don't really have that much opportunity to inject a lot of your personality. A lot of it is fact, 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 dates, times, what you've got to get across, what the client wants you to get across. And that makes good copywriting from that aspect and that niche and that sector. Um, but for journalism, you've got to do that. You've got to get across all the really grabby bits, but you also want to put across more of yourself. And that's something that I've been really trying to do more of Um as I progressed, there was a period of my career where I was doing, I was getting a lot of commissions and I was writing for a lot of magazines, but I was, I found myself following a formula a bit too closely. And I mm-hmm. thought, I'm not really pushing myself here. What I really want to develop is my own voice and really put my own character in there. So that is something that I've been really trying to develop this past year. And it's hard because in my, in my eyes, the people I interview are way more interesting than me. So you want to hear from those people. You don't want to hear from me. Um, But for the sustainability of what I do, I do need to develop my own voice and I need to kind of put that across. So I'm forever trying to get better. And also I think responding to criticism, I I get criticism um, from editors, constructive criticism. Um, At least that's what I tell myself um, every now and then. Like, and I try and, Instead of just being like, ah, fuck you, I'm going to ignore that, which you should never do. I try and take it on board and think, okay, well, where are they coming from? Because, um, you know, nine times out of ten, even more than that, it will improve my writing. They're telling me this for a reason. They're not just being harsh. <laughs> so the ability to kind of take that on board and really adapt it and improve your work um, is a constant learning process. And understanding what the audiences are for each outlet that you're writing for Little White Lies, their audience will be interested into in, in a different aspect of cinema than Total Film will be interested in. So it's understanding those niches and then bringing them to the front or to the fore of each article that you're writing. So you're talking to people that have, you know, nostalgic roles who have been, you know, en- engulfed in a character per se or are kind of tagged with it, tarnished almost sometimes. So like, how do you feel people are in that situation? Like, what is your experience working with people that have to kind of keep a character going or like, or maybe it's hard to get away from? I think it's, it's really interesting because you're, you're absolutely right. Like everyone that I talk to, or the, you know, the majority of people that I talk to have had um, an early success with a really iconic film or TV show or TV series and it's really come to define who they are and, uh, and and who audiences see them as and that can be a real double-edged sword I think uh, I think a lot of, a lot of times there's a there's a trajectory that you kind of can identify that a lot of them follow so they start off 
you know, enjoying the success. And then maybe in the middle part of their career, they're thinking, oh my God, I'm really associated with this character and I really wish I wasn't. And then eventually they come back around to it and they really start to see and to appreciate the, uh, just the strong bonds that, and, and the roles and the, the sort of influence and impact that those roles have had on audiences. Because I think we take for granted just how um, profound and, and important um, pop culture is on everyone. You know, people define their lives by it. People really hang a lot of their identity on it as well. And, uh, you know, for example, a couple of weeks ago, or I think it was a couple of months ago, I interviewed Alan Rook, who um, is an actor who's in Succession at the moment, which is a great series. Everyone should watch Succession. But he's best known for uh, playing Cameron Fry, Ferris Bueller's uh, kind of nervous friend who was brought along uh, on, on, the, on, on, on Ferris's kind of day off and Ferris Bueller's day off. And, uh, and he... He is obviously, for a long time, was defined as that character because that film had such a strong bond with audiences. People really connected. It's one of the biggest films of the 80s. It's one of the best young adult films ever made. Um, now he's got the second uh, career uh, interest with Succession, but um, it's the 35th anniversary of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off this year, and I was like not going to not ask him about that. Our interview wasn't about that, but I was definitely going to ask him about that. So... The real test was to, or the, the challenge was to try and find an interesting way in. So uh, my, my way in was to try and talk to him about the, the way that his relationship with the movie has changed over this period. And what you find is that he, you know, there was a period of time where he hated the movie. He really hated the fact that mm. everywhere he went, he was Cameron Fry and everywhere... Mm. Everyone, every time people bumped into him on the street, they were asking him if it was his day off. And uh, and he really came to hate it. But now he he sort of has this um, appreciation for how this movie helps people. And I feel like you do get that... Um, you do get that appreciation with people. I mean, like Bill and Ted, as well as another example, you know, that on the surface is a very goofy, light-hearted time travel movie about two airhead dudes who travel around time in a phone booth. But... At the same time, they've put out this message into the world of, you know, be excellent to each other, which is a really kind of profound message, especially in today's climate where everyone is so divided and everyone is, everything is so constantly terrible. Like the fact that you can just be like, look, just be cool. Don't be a dick <laughs> is, uh, is a really nice thing. And, uh, and I think that the creators do get a sense of that. And, um, and it's really nice talking to these people who, and a lot of the people I talk to, agreed to talk to me because they have come around to that point of view of understanding and appreciating the effect that their work has had on audiences. And, um, and it's nice. It's, it's nice hearing that because we really do take it for granted. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just really interesting because pop culture is such a big part of our lives. And, uh, and especially during, during the past 12 months, well, a lot of the people that I've interviewed have really been in awe of how uh, audiences have really fallen back on these nostalgic, familiar films as a form of therapy to get them through really difficult times. You know, like people have, for the majority of people, we've, we've been locked down and it's been an inconvenient. You know, some people have had real difficulty in the past 12 months and they've relied on shows like the US Office or like Community or 
It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia or mm-hmm. all these programs as a, th- as a form of escape from the terribleness of the news. And, uh, and that's really crazy that, that th- what seemingly is throwaway could have such a restorative, you know, lifeline effect for people. And, and the people involved with it really do understand that. So that's, that's really nice. When I think iconic characters that are synonymous with the roles they played, I always think back to, you know, Marty McFly and Doc Brown in Back to the Future. And they really, whenever I see them doing something related to the Back to the Future, they're always engulfed in it, up for it. And I just feel that, you know, Michael J. Fox, given all the struggles he's been through, to still do that and still care as much as he does and realize how into that film people are and how nostalgic they are. Like, I just, it's kudos to them every time I see them doing something about it. Back to the Future is this huge, huge, multi-generational movie. And, you know, they, in a sense, have have what we were just talking about to the nth degree. They're never going to escape Back to the Future. Back to the Future is here to stay. They better get on the bandwagon of it and enjoy it and embrace it. Or, you know, they're going to have a really hard time. And I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, Michael J. Fox is always going to be Martin McFly. Like, he, he's never going to escape that role. But for all the hard uh, things he's had to deal with in his life and continues to have to deal with in his life, you know, in a way, like, what a gift is it is to have this role for him to be associated with most. You know, he's, he's you know... He's retired now, and we're not. We may not get to see him that much more on on TV or movies. But um, but how amazing is it that everyone's mental image that they're going to have as Marty McFly, uh, as Michael J. Fox and Marty McFly for 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 years and decades, and you know it's going to long outlive all of us. Is this really youthful, time traveling, cool guy who has a hoverboard? Like that's amazing. I would have killed for a hoverboard in in high school, and now I would totally. I want. If you can hook me with a hoverboard, Dan, I that would be great because I really would like one. Um, but like, that's amazing. Like, you know, no matter what he does, and he's done so many great roles, but it's just really great that he's going to live forever as this the coolest guy in time traveling history. And and the fact that they embrace that is is really really nice for fans because I think it's always great when you, especially speaking as a fan, because I think. First and foremost, of all the things I write about, I do come from the point of view of a fan, and uh, and it's just it's, there's a nice feeling knowing that the the guys behind the people behind the camera are just as into it as you are. That's really like a nice feeling. You're like part of this little club, and um, mm. and I spoke to uh, Christopher Lloyd like early on in my career, which blew my mind because is the doc, and not only is he the doc, but he's been in Taxi, he's been in The Adams Family, he's been in One Flow Over the Cookie's Nest, which is one of the greatest films ever made, and uh, and you did get the sense that, you know, he didn't fully understand why this one movie, Back to the Future, has grab, grabbed hold of society so much, but, you know, he loved the fact that it had. You know, people have, people have watched that movie and decided to, and uh, watched Doc Brown and decided to go into science careers and have genuinely made some science technological advances that have benefited humanity. And a lot of them okay. pin that down to the fact of watching Doc Brown in his DeLorean and wearing his two ties in, in, in the year 2020, 2015 <laughs> in Back to the Future Part 2. You know, they pin it down to that. That is crazy. The power of pop culture is insane. So yeah, it's nice, yeah. It's, it's nice hearing that from people. Outside of journalism, let's dig into something that people might not know about you, what you do, and 
what keeps you occupied outside of work? Like I was thinking about questions that you might ask me, like what do people know know about me that might what do people not know about me? And I was like, God, I couldn't think of anything. I was like, how uninteresting am I that there's no one thing that I can think of that uh, people might not know about me? I mean, I like. Uh, I like I like a I like a variety of things. I'm trying to write more. Like I write, it all does come down to writing. I try and I try and write mm-hmm. a lot whenever I can. Um, trying to do more fiction stuff, but it's really really hard. But it's a challenge. But it's really good. I'm enjoying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got half a thumb. You might know that. Not everyone might not know that. Um, so I only have nine fingers. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking one of the things that people might not know about me is when I was a kid. It's just really interesting. Um, it's not really interesting, but it's on, it's interesting in the way that it played out in terms of what I do now. So when I was like 16, maybe even earlier, I think I was maybe like 13, 14, maybe even 12, Jim Carrey was like my favorite actor in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for some reason, I don't even know how I did it now, but I managed to get some kind of like postal address. This was before emails at the end there or anything uh, to mm-hmm. try and find his like, his address uh, or address of like his, his his team and I sent off this letter being like oh my god you're my favourite actor I love this this is amazing um, and then about two maybe about a year later I'd completely forgotten that I'd sent the the letter I got a signed headshot from Jim Carrey like back with this like black and white headshot with like T. Simon like I think it said something like spank you very much because he'd just done Ace Ventura at the time <laughs> I'm like, 12-year-old me was like pissing my pants. I was like, this is insane. This is so good. Um, but I just think it's really it's really crazy thinking that now I do that on a professional, or try and do yeah. that on a professional level. Uh, yeah. So I've forever been pestering uh, celebrities. and So you're now a professional stalker, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've, been, um, I've, I've somehow managed to monetize the whole uh, stalking <laughs> business. <laughs> Inappropriate, yeah. Um, approaching, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cool. That's really cool. And uh, yeah, I love Jim Carrey. Like he's so funny, and his recent mentality and his mindset stuff that's come out recently is just really cool. Like yeah. he was the stuff he says where he's like, "You've, you know," he said he like created a different persona to be Jim Carrey and stuff, and then he was like, he said he had to get it all to then lose it all and then know what was important and stuff. So I just found some of his recent stuff. To be that honest about stuff is quite cool for him. So yeah, I have a soft spot for him. He's an interesting guy because he's like a real good example of what happens when you get everything you could ever want in the world and you're still not happy, which I really get the sense with Jim Carrey is that there is, this is going off topic for a bit, (laughs) the Jim Carrey niche, but um I do get the sense that he is a deeply unhappy person. I feel like he's constantly striving for this something else that, on mm. you know, for anyone else in the world, he's he's got it made. But for him, there's something not quite right. And I think he's trying to work that out in a lot of the art that he does. You know, his book that he released recently really covered that. And a lot of the work that he's doing um, outside of Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> uh, right now is uh, is really trying to, like, access some of that. So yeah, I think it's really interesting. He is an interesting guy. And I'm still a huge fan. I've still got a headshot somewhere. I'm going to get it framed, actually. I tried to find it for this call because it would be a great thing right now, wouldn't it? If I was like, and here it is. But I, I couldn't find it. So, sorry. No. <laughs> it's okay. We'll forgive you. Um, so what's next for you, mate? What, what 
what's next on the agenda? Is it just more journalism? Have you got any side projects that you're working on? Or? Yeah, so it's more of the same, really. I'm, um, I've got, I've constantly at any one time got about two or three different commissions that I'm chipping away at and working on. So, um, as I said, I work, I'm, I'm doing something with Charlie Sheen now, and um, and I'm trying to set something up with um, about uh, the anniversary, 35th anniversary of Aliens, the Jim Cameron film Aliens. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on um, a bunch of different things on anniversaries of TV shows of 30 Rock and, and things like that, which is one of my favorite TV shows. Um, and I'm just trying to like keep going at it. I think one of the big challenges now, especially with the pandemic and, you know, that's really affected publications because if you can't get into mm. news agents and print journalism was already a bit kind of shaky, you know, yeah. how are you going to, um, how's that going to survive? So really the, the key thing for me now is to just keep plugging away and keep trying to be as innovative and um, resourceful as I can and really try and be as tenacious as I can to really get uh, get those commissions in the bag and to access the interviews, uh, the people that I say that I want to try and interview, to try and get those interviews in the bag. So it's, um, yeah, it's more of the same. And I, I want to try and really push what I'm doing a bit forward and change it up and really as I said before try and inject a bit more of my own personality into stuff and I would like to try and do some kind of like fictional writing whether that will happen or not uh, we'll see but hopefully fingers crossed it's been great to have you on the show Simon appreciate you taking the time and giving this kind of unique perspective of people you've spoken to and the way you do things it's it's cool for me to find out more about you because we haven't spoken properly for a number of years you know kind of kept in touch but it's Nice to actually delve into what you're doing day to day and actually what you're going through. So how can people best get hold of you? Is it like LinkedIn, email? Like kind of all of the above, really. If you want to drop me an email, it's simon.bland, that's B-L-A-N-D, at hotmail.com. And I'm on Twitter, at SciTweets2. I'm on Instagram, uh, at SMD underscore, no, wait, SMN underscore BND. Uh, I forgot my own Instagram handle there. Uh, I am on LinkedIn, but I couldn't tell you the URL for that. But if you search my name, you'll probably find me. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, if, if anyone wants to find it anymore or if anyone wants to try and write for Manchester Wire, if you're listening to this and you're based in Manchester or always looking for new writers, um, or if you just want to get in touch with to find out more about some of the articles I do, just drop me a line. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys, and hope you found this uh, interesting as much as I did. Uh, If you can uh, hit the like, subscribe, comment, and uh, I will see you in the next one.